Good afternoon, everyone, and, and welcome to this reading, uh, which marks the close of this marvellous exhibition, Maquettes. Um, this is a, a text I wrote based upon the maquettes that I uh, have submitted to this show. Um, this was written for a magazine and it hasn't come out yet, so this, this is one of the first public airings uh, of the text developed from the maquette. Um, it's in seven parts, small parts, very small parts, um, and as with most of my readings, it comes with one certainty and one mystery. The certainty is that I will definitely trip over the words at some point in the reading. The mystery is, I don't know when that's going to happen. I can read a line perfectly ten times in a row, and then on the eleventh, my tongue will fall out over my teeth. So, let's see when it happens, but it will happen. Ekphrasis, on the beauty of words and things. One. At the start of the year, the artist Richard Bevan asked me to participate in a studio exhibition of maquettes. I said I would take the request seriously. Don't overthink it, Richard replied. Maquette, he went on, should be taken as a very broad term for something that exists between a thought and a thing. Richard is very precise in his work, so I assumed he wasn't mistaken in inviting me to contribute to the show. Even so, my immediate response as a writer was to consider the exact opposite of his proposition, the space between a thing and a thought that is inhabited exclusively by words. Traditionally a preliminary model for a monument or sculpture, the maquette exists as a morphological test of materials and form, part of a process by which one object is not so much transformed into another as replaced by it. It is then a necessary and fundamental law in nature, the mathematician Leonard Euler wrote in 1760 to the princess of Anhalt-Dessau, that no two bodies can penetrate each other or occupy the same place at once. And it is in conformity with this principle that we must look for the real source of all motions that we observe in all bodies and of the changes that befall them. Looking over at a shelf near my desk, I discovered that something that has always existed between a thing and a thought, a collection of objects ranged side by side in space and yet unrelated to each other. They were there because I had nowhere else to put them, but no wish to throw them out either. Careless, distracted hands had placed these bodies in close proximity to each other, and chance had helped arrange them over time. But can something brought together without thought be considered an arrangement or simply an assemblage? Can judgment be unconscious and ingrained, the objects locating themselves in some unseen order? I realised that I was staring at my maquette. 2. Let's start with the figures in the centre. There are two of them, carved from untreated wood that has grown desiccated and weightless over the years. They belonged to my aunt Edna, who brought them back from Japan, where she had lived for many years teaching English and studying Zen Buddhism. She was also clairaudient and a practicing white witch who had her own cult following in Hawaii. They all turned out to see her when she flew in to attend a spiritualist conference there sometime in the 1970s. I only knew Aunt Edna for a few months in my late teens after she returned to the UK to spend more time with her family. But it was long enough. The wooden figures are of an elderly man and woman in traditional Japanese costume. The folds and drapes of cloth hint at the aged bulk of their bodies, 
outstretched arms hidden within long, ornate sleeves. It looks as though the male figure may have held something in his right hand once. The left is completely snapped off. The female figure also looks as though she were once holding something. She wears a blue and silver band around her white hair, and her gown is highlighted in gold. She actually looks a lot like my Aunt Edna. Perhaps the two figures belonged to a larger decorative piece. It would certainly explain the dramatic power gathered within their stooped poses. Ekphrasis is the oldest form of writing about art in the West, starting with Homer's description of the labyrinth depicted on Achilles' shield in Book 18 of the Iliad. The aim is to make the reader see an artwork as if it were there before them, outlined in words. A carved hawthorn branch on the lower left-hand side of the elderly male figure would appear to be the maker's signature. 3. What exists between a description of a work of art and the artwork itself? Is beauty the part we leave out of the picture? The remnant in the background that remains unexplained? To the left of the two figures stands an insulated foam rubber beer can holder from the Lebanon Valley Dragway in West Lebanon, New York. It's designed to keep your beer cool on a hot day up in the stands watching the dragsters burn out below and to prevent the can from slipping out of your hand. A tutor at Central St. Martin's brought it back from the States for me because she knew how much I love drag racing. The colour scheme is blue on yellow. A quarter mile strip of road stretches out from the top of the D in dragway and a supercharged pro-stock or pro-mod car is shown smoking rubber along it crossing the base of an imperfect triangle as if it were the finish line. Drag strips are the best places in the world to think about beauty. There are decals, spray jobs and logos on everything. The car's front assembly throws a tight shadow directly beneath it. The same motif appears on the front and back of the cylindrical holder. Move it around fast and it looks as though the car itself is moving. I have never once used it to hold a can of beer. 4. An assemblage of objects constitutes a maquette for the text I am reading to you now, caught between a thing and a thought. Back at its centre, between the two carved figures from Japan, is a small, irregular chip of wood, about a centimetre in length, and painted white on all but one of its sides. A fragment from the very back of the elderly male's traditional headgear. My Aunt Edna had diabetes and was devoted to health food, which she thought absorbed the power of the sun. She died one hot, dry summer, leaving the carved wooden figures to my mother, who eventually passed them on to me. I accidentally dropped the elderly male while taking him down from a high shelf to bring home, and the wood was so old and fragile that it simply broke off. I've never repaired it, never intended to, but still felt the need to keep the small fragment, carefully packing it with the two figures so that it would remain a permanent part of their arrangement, set apart but forever belonging to them. Five. First and foremost, aesthetics should be regarded as the study of sensory impressions and how they relate to our understanding of the world. Resting upright behind the carved wooden figure of the elderly male with a piece missing from the back of his head is a rectangular sheet of glossy printed card. It came as part of the packaging for a chocolate bar brought back for me from Bayreuth by my wife Rachel, who had received a last-minute invitation to attend the festival there. For three nights one summer, she sat on the famous hard wooden seats inside the opera house, watching performances of Tristan und Isolde, Lohengrin and Tannhäuser. 
On the card is a simple line drawing in brown of Wagner's Festspielhaus, flanked by trees and showing the balcony where fanfares are traditionally played before the start of each act, calling the audience in from the cool evening breezes. In Wagner's day, the doors of the auditorium would be locked once everyone had dutifully filed back to their place. Wagner is the only thing that Rachel and I ever argue about. His work leaves me worn out, as if sensation had been transformed into a nervous condition, hence the chocolate brought back as a gift from Bayreuth. The card from the packaging is too thin to stand up by itself, so it tends to droop down like a drunken canopy over the elderly male figure. Some marks have managed to adhere themselves high up in the glossy white sky above the Festspielhaus when I took the card from the shelf to study it more closely. I don't know how that happened. Attempts to clean them off have left scratches and some discoloration. 6. Beauty does not reside within any object or arrangement of objects. The items about which I am writing were simply washed up together on a shelf, caught there against the spines of books, an incoherent line between the mainland and the receding waves. To the right of the carved wooden figure of the elderly female with the blue and silver band around her white hair lies a 2002 Ohio silver dollar, reverse side up. The coin, designed by John Flanagan and Donna Weaver, has become dulled over the years by contact with the atmosphere. It depicts the Wright Flyer 3, a biplane developed in 1904 by the Wright brothers following their successful attempts to launch a heavier-than-air machine that previous year. Unlike their first aircraft, the Wright brothers Flyer 3 was tested over Huffman Prairie just outside Dayton, Ohio. The engraving is based on a photograph taken at the time, superimposed over the Ohio State outline, which takes up most of the coin's surface. Across the Flyer 3 stands an American astronaut, arms out to the side and feet spread. The pose is reminiscent of one adopted by Buzz Aldrin while being photographed on the moon by Neil Armstrong. But Aldrin is from New Jersey, and the, and the law states that only the dead are allowed to appear on US coins. Armstrong, on the other hand, hailed from Ohio, as did Mercury astronaut John Glenn. Orville Wright was also born in Ohio, but not his brother Wilbur, who first saw day in Millville, Indiana. And the first Wright flyer made history, taking off just four miles south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. State quarters are usually 75 to 80% copper, and the rest is nickel. They all bear the same message, E Pluribus Unum. This one also says, Ohio, 1803, birthplace of aviation pioneers. 7. A beer can holder, two carved wooden figures from Japan, a drawing of an opera house on, the, on a card from the back of a chocolate bar, a coin, none of their stories touch. I don't even know what their presence on this shelf means. It's actually easier to picture them suddenly materialising together, forced out from another dimension into this one, simultaneously occupying the same time but not the same space as each other. I have a quote from Andreas Gursky jotted down in one of my notebooks. Quote, I am interested in the ideal, typical approximation of everyday phenomena, in creating the essence of reality, unquote. I don't know what this means either, except that the ghost of Immanuel Kant clings to every word, rolling its eyes at me. To complete the group, there is one other card propped up behind the carved wooden figure of the elderly female and the 2002 Ohio State Quarter. 
This one advertises an Andy Warhol exhibition at the Hayward Gallery in London between October the 7th, 2008 and January the 18th, 2009. It features a self-portrait of Warhol wearing sunglasses and looking as pale and enigmatic as a skull, framed to resemble a Polaroid photograph as closely as possible. When it came to beauty, Warhol knew that what really counted was quantity. That's why he never threw anything away. What would happen if I were to take the constituent parts of my maquette and throw them away? Stuck on a shelf together like that, they are halfway there already. But this would only stretch their relationship over space, just as this text stretches it across time as a fragmented series of thoughts. Beauty hides itself somewhere among them, caught as always between words and things. Thank you.